Greetings to all of you. This is David Thompson from the Fraser Valley in British Columbia. <clears throat> Today is Good Friday, April the 14th. <coughs> You'll have to excuse me because I have been getting over uh, what could have been influenza or a severe cold. Um, so there may be a little bit of that happening. For those that are new, I just briefly want to say this, that I do seek for God to lead me in his word and to speak what he would be seeking to say to myself, to you as an individual, and to the body of Christ around the world. I don't really spend anything much as far as effort in preparing an outline or notes. I do ask God to lead me to a particular chapter each day, often by the casting of lots, and spend a half an hour on the chapter meditating and making notes. Now what I'm doing is not being too concerned about doing a whole chapter, rather just whatever, how many verses that takes and then continuing if it only takes the first three verses of the chapter until the whole chapter is done. And then <coughs> continue to allow God to lead me to another passage of scripture. I sensed that this week I was to speak from the Song of Solomon chapter 1, which I received and spent three days on. And yet today is the Day of Atonement. So I'm asking to myself, asking myself, how does that fit in with speaking from the Song of Solomon? The day of the crucifixion of Christ, the day of his atoning work on the cross. We also know that there's Yom Kippur, which is known as the Day of Atonement. It was a significant day at a particular different time of the year, but points to the same work of God's great condescension where he humbled himself more than us mere creatures and suffered more than you and me. It's incomprehensible. But then God is incomprehensible. He is beyond our comprehension. Considering the vastness of outer space, and I could go into the details to give one a reminder of that. I mean, how many of us do not know in this day and age the vastness of outer space? The speed of light travels around the world seven times in one second. And yet to reach the nearest star takes five years at that speed. Our sun is a thousand times larger than the earth. And yet our sun is not one of the biggest stars. It's an average star. In our own Milky Way galaxy, there's millions and millions of these stars. And I don't know how many light years it would take 
across the galaxy known as the Milky Way. And most galaxies have billions of stars within them, if not near billions. And now they know there's billions of galaxies with billions of stars in them. In fact, the stars are literally more in number than the sand grains of the sea. So that's just the vastness of this physical dimension. It is incomprehensible. And then we have the discovery through particle physics, big projects like the Hadron Collider, which is a $16 billion project that took 16 years to build, over 5,000 scientists involved, and physicists and many others. And what is their whole goal? Their whole goal was to discover the God particle. Because they realized that everything had solidity, but they didn't understand how everything could be solid. They needed to find the force that was holding everything together to make things solid. <coughs> and they discovered that through this Large Hadron Collider in, I believe it was July of 2012, they discovered the God Party. The thing that they had set out with this massive project to discover, I mean, you have a tunnel under the earth between Geneva and Switzerland there, actually under a city known in Roman times as the city of destruction. And there's particles that are shot in that tunnel at about 99.9% .9 the speed of light, even closer than that actually. And then they're allowed to steer those particles so that they start colliding. Where I think there's something like a million explosions a second. And the heat is a um, hundred thousand times possibly more hotter than the sun from those explosions. There are miniature explosions, and there's cameras taking pictures of all the particles that fly out from these explosions into a massive computer system. In fact, even the internet came from these experiments where they were putting computers together around the world many years ago with smaller colliders. So there's vast amounts of d data that are collected within that one second that are analyzed by enormous computer systems around the world. And this is all to discover the essence of matter. And of course, what they've discovered that, that the physical realm is just a small tip of what is out there. There are other dimensions, and they've discovered that they are even more complex. This would mean that there is other dimensions that are more real than this present realm. You know, I get a little bothered when I hear certain people that are Bible experts say, oh, this is the immaterial realm. I don't think describing the spiritual realm as the immaterial realm is a good way to describe it because it gives the feeling that it's something that's ethereal, that's not that real, it's not solid like the physical realm. I, I would suggest another term. When you're talking about the spiritual realm, don't use the word immaterial realm. Because of 
the fact that it is not describing the reality of these other dimensions. Why don't you use a word like this, ultra-real, permanent, lasting realm? That's what we're talking about when we're talking about the spiritual realm, a realm that is far more real and is not filled with corruption like in this present physical realm. For the Word of God is clear that the things which are invisible last forever, but the things that are visible are perishable. They do not last forever, at least in this present time. When the kingdom of God invades the physical realm and comes into this world in the last days and his kingdom is set up through Jesus Christ, at that time, I am sure that what is on the earth will be forever and ever and ever and will never end. So here we are on this insignificant little planet in the midst of a vast universe, and yet there's realms that are far more greater than the physical realm. But how vast this physical realm is. And the Word of God says that he humbles himself to behold the things that are in the heavens. And what is man that thou art mindful of him, or the son of man, that you even consider him? People have a misconception of God when they believe that he cannot be great enough to humble himself and suffer more than us mere creatures. So that he could absorb our rebellion and the consequences of it with death and swallow death and conquer it and rise again. What I want to share today is about the love of God. And yes, I have the Song of Solomon on my computer here before me to share with you. But I want to emphasize the love of God because the Song of Solomon is about a love relationship of the Creator with His corporate bride. This is the ultimate consummate purpose of history. God is more zealous than anything for that time when his bride will come forth around the world, pure and spotless without wrinkle, and be ready for that consummate marriage that will go on forever and ever without end, in communion with the Creator. Are you not so glad that you're part of the family of God, if you're redeemed and have received the atoning work of Jesus Christ? Oh, I has not seen the word of God said, neither has ear heard, neither has it even entered into the heart of man, which God has prepared for them that love him. But he has revealed it to us by his spirit, through what was written in the scriptures by the moving of the Holy Spirit, for example, in the writing of the book of Revelation, where we have the description of the New Jerusalem coming down in the last days after the millennial reign of Christ for a thousand years, where you have a city that is 1,500 miles high, 1,500 miles wide, and four square. And whether the walls are included in the same height, one could only, cons one, one would only wonder but it does describe the walls, and I don't think it was because they needed protection. It is because of the beauty that it 
enhances and what it represents. And that is the time that we have the description of the marriage of God in Revelations chapter 21. Now I'm going to turn to some of these passages because I'm just doing this under the leading of the Holy Spirit without notes. I just want to share putting together the significant day which is on the atoning work of Jesus Christ on the cross where he cried out and he said, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. And a total union and trust with the Father through it all, where his spirit never became defiled, never lost its link of faith with the Father, but was always in that state of selfless trust. Because of that, there was within him that ultimate moral perfection who is who God is. For God is love and his love is pure, it is holy, it has integrity, it is a flaming fire of judgment against all that is contrary to it, and yet is so ultimate in that perfection that it is ultimately expressed in mercy, because he, without violating the integrity of his love that required judgment, took judgment upon himself. For the sins of the world, that whosoever believes in Jesus Christ, not from their head, but from their very being, will receive, as the Word of God says, whoever believes in me out of his innermost being will flow rivers of living water. Why have people as it says in Jeremiah, you have hewn out broken cisterns that can hold no water. Why do you grasp after the temporal things of this world and make them the focus of your life and of your energy and fall away from me, the one who wants to love you? You will never no satisfaction in the inner core of your being as long as you refuse to believe the truth. What is the truth? God is the truth. And the reason God is the truth is because God is love, the very source of all that is genuine love. The truth is a quality that can, can contain unlimited power and unlimited life without dissipating that power and that life in wrong choices. Can contain that unlimited power and life without being corrupted by it. And the only quality that can contain that is an ultimate moral perfection of love. And what I am describing is this ultimate moral perfection of love cannot be described in a greater way, nor can be possibly in existence in a greater way than what I share with you in this message. It is impossible to describe a quality that is more ultimate, more worthy, more valuable, more meaningful, than the love I'm about to describe to you here today. 
and I'm going to be describing to you about the love of God and what that quality is. The whole purpose and meaning for your existence is love, is that you should know a love relationship with your Creator, who is the very source of love. You see, love is a quality that is, first of all, totally self-originating, totally free in its choice. We're not like robots. You can't make a robot love you. It's just receiving its information from an outside source. It's not a self-originating creation. It is the input of man or whatever else created that machine. It's one thing to have a machine. It's another thing to have a being that is totally self-originating. In that, there is the capacity to love. God is the source of all self-originating or free-willed beings. In fact, it says that we are named from whose, who all the family is named is from God. The word name has the understanding of being, of who we really are. It comes from God, from his name, from his being. We are created in his image, certainly in the aspect, first of all, that we have the capacity to love because we have free self-originating love or choice. That makes us also self-responsible. And that is why all that God creates of beings that are totally self-originating choice, they cannot blame God. They are self-responsible for their choices because they are self-originating in their choices. When you create beings with free will, you create the potential for wrong choice. And with the potential of wrong choice is the potential for hell or for corruption. But God's purpose is that he would have a corporate bride. And his love is not only self-originating, but always chooses the highest lasting good over any more immediate temporal gratification or fulfillment. That's the other aspect of defining the love of God. God's love is so perfect that he always chooses the highest lasting good over any more immediate temporal choice, which would imply any other choice would have corruption in it or the principle of destruction in it, also known in science as the second law of thermodynamics, which basically says that anything left on its own always goes in the direction of disorder. Because God is the very source of life, because he has a love that has such integrity and purity that it is a flaming fire of judgment against anything that is contrary to his love, his love being that quality that always chooses the highest lasting good over any other choice that would be less and more immediate. God's love is a love that is 
pure. It is the defensive aspect of his love that requires judgment. And from that is the foundation from which there can go forth his creativity without corruption that can ever enlarge and ever expand in greater realms of creative creativity and creating worlds and creating beings that goes on forever in greater and greater enlargement. But his ultimate purpose in all of that is that he would have a corporate bride, that the potential of corruption would be swallowed up by an ultimate purpose greater than that potential of corruption. And that is a bride that is so brought into love with God that it becomes immune to the potential of corruption without the negation of total free will. Total free will. His ultimate purpose is that you would know the truth and that the truth would set you free. And the truth is that God's love is so great that without, without violating the integrity of his love, he took judgment upon himself for all those that would repent and receive his atoning work on the cross. It says in the scripture that in Revelations chapter 18, I believe it is, there's a verse there that says he was slain before the foundation of the world. In other words, the reality that God condescended and became a perfect atoning sacrifice was not just a capacity, it was a reality in the perfection of God's being before the world was created. <coughs> so that it was accepted, so that it was as if it had already happened. You see, God is the Father and government transcends time and space and is beyond time and space and his personage and sees the end from the beginning. The Son is the full expression of the Father into the time and space realm to communicate with creation. And so it is through the Son, Jesus Christ, the only one and full expression of the Father. He condescended. Yes, God is so great. Not as some in our infirm and finite minds think that God is less than great if he would humble himself and suffer more than us mere creatures. I would say a God that is that has such love that he could do that for you and me that created such a vast universe, that makes God ultimate in greatness ultimate in the greatness of his love, and ultimate in the greatness of his power and his glory. I'm wanting to share here from the Song of Solomon about this love that you can enter into in Song of Solomon chapter 1. We read verse 1. The song of songs, which is Solomon's, let him kiss me with the kisses of his mouth, for thy love is better than wine. Now this is a typification 
in the love relationship of a man with a woman, a God's love relationship with us. And it says here that God's love is better than wine. Wine represents the pleasures of this temporal world that people can become drunken with. In fact, I've often used a little poem the odd time here and there when I'm going through the till or whatever. When someone asks me how I'm doing, I'll say, well, I'm fine. I'm drinking heavily wine. I need not wine. I've found what's better than worldly wine. Why, even before my enemies, I can die. Well, I don't want to look crazy to them, so I often Sometimes I have these little poems I like to share. But it is true that the wine that is divine is far more fulfilling and satisfying than any wine of this world that we are trying to fill the void of our inner being with, like those broken cisterns that can hold no water. As Jeremiah described, Christ says, whoever believes from their heart with their light into me out of their innermost being shall flow rivers of living water. And that is my experience, and it is the experience of any of those that have truly, from the depth of their heart, asked God. Elohim, the Almighty's One, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, to be the Lord and the Savior of their lives. Ask Jesus Christ to be the center and Lord of their life by First of all, asking him to be merciful to them, to forgive them of all their sin, and to cleanse them of all their sin, so that they are made in their soul, as it were, white as snow. Indeed, a reality white as snow. Do you want the kiss of God? We are to ask God to kiss us with the kisses of his mouth. Because why? Because his love is better than wine. When we ask God to kiss us with the kisses of his mouth, we experience his presence, which is better than the wine of this world, because his wine is divine. <clears throat> and when we dine with the divine, we are fully satisfied. There's a verse in Isaiah that says, Ho, everyone that thirsteth, come ye to the waters. He that hath no money, come, buy, without money and without price. Why do you labor for that which does not satisfy? How many of us fail to put God first in our lives and have lost touch with an intimate love relationship with him? where we really see that his love is better than wine, where we really see how great his love is so that we want to cry out and say, God, just kiss me with the kisses of your mouth. Now, what is the kisses of his mouth? Well, his mouth brings forth the expression of who he is, which is his word. Jesus Christ is the full expression of the Father. He is also called the Word. Let him kiss you with that love 
that will set you free from grasping after the wines of this world. Why don't you just ask him to do that? Tell him, God, you know, I'm always grasping after these temporal things like baits that manipulate my life. I repent of it. I want to know a love relationship with you. Would you please just baptize me in your love and let me know the very kissing of your words, of your being, being expressed in words to me. We go on and we read in the Song of Solomon, in verse 3, now I don't know why verse, okay, I got verse, that was verse 1 and 2. Verse 3 says, because of the savor of thy good ointments, thy name is as ointment poured forth. Therefore, do the virgins love thee. The pure expression of your being of love is like the pouring out of the most pre pre precious, best-smelling ointments. That's of God's being of love. The pure expression of God's being of love is like the pouring out of the most precious, best-smelling ointments, which causes those who, whose love is pure from the loves of this world to love God. You cannot know the savor of the good ointments of his name, which is his being that is love, for God is love. You can't know that name of Jesus Christ as ointment poured forth if you're in love with the temporal wines of this world. The Word of God says, Love not the world, neither the things that are in the world. For if any man love the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes and the pride of life, is not of the Father, but is of the world, and the world passes away, and the lust thereof. But he that does the will of God abides forever. You cannot do the will of God if you're in love with the temporal realms and things of this life. It can be a very ex painful experience as a believer to go through the process being unraveled from the deceptions of one's heart that still finds themselves justifying holding on to things as godly that are not. God calls us to be those that are virgins because it's the virgins that will truly experience that they are, they, they are the ones that love God. Because you see, when you're free from the impurity of the world, you enter in to a wholeness in your being. And let me explain this a bit. You see, I describe the love of God as having such purity and integrity that it will be a blazing fire of judgment against the slightest thought, word, or deed that is contrary to his love. From that foundation springs forth God's creativity ultimately expressed in a love so great that he would have a corporate bride, and that was ultimately expressed in that he was crucified on the cross, and his love was outpoured in his body broken for you, and his blood outpoured in being shed for you, suffering more than you a mere creature, humbling himself more than you a mere creature, 
so that you could receive forgiveness of sins and come into a love relationship with God and also with his people corporately in a love relationship with God to be part of the family of God in heaven forever, the bride of Jesus Christ. It is the virgins that love God, that delight in the savor of his good ointments, of his name being outpoured to them in love. They are not willing to let the things of this world stand in the way. They will sacrifice a good paying job so they can have the time to pray and seek God. They will sacrifice friends that get in the way of using up their time in order to have the time to be in a love relationship with God, in a life that is given and sets aside significant time in prayer and in seeking God each day. There's no set rules. I don't want to get people into Judy and religious bondage, but I do want to emphasize that it is important to have a life of prayer. A time that you set aside especially, like you would with your own wife. You want times alone with her. If you in a love relationship with uh, your wife or a lady you're planning to marry are so busy all the time with other things, you're not going to communicate effectively, you're not going to reciprocate with each other, and you're going to start having layers of hardness, and you're going to end up not having a love relationship. You're going to end up having misunderstandings, and things are going to break up. That's true in the natural. But it's also true in our relationship with God. We must be willing to face the reality of, the, of what it costs and see that it's worth it all. I mean, if you really see that the treasure that you want is there and that it's worth it all, wouldn't you want to let go of the things that are so much less? It's our failure to see what is worth it all. And what causes that failure is the veiling of our heart by hardness due to the subtle ways that busyness and the things of temporal concerns can take up our focus and energy so that we are diverted from what is really important. It is far better to be poor and to have a vital relationship with God because you've not allowed your time in prayer to be robbed and your time in the Word of God and seeking Him. We're to seek first the kingdom of God and His righteousness. And we go on in the Song of Solomon here, and we read in verse 4, Draw me, we will run after thee. The king hath brought me into his chambers. We will be glad and rejoice in thee. We will remember thy love more than wine. Pardon, yeah, more than wine. The upright love thee. We are to ask God who is loved to draw us and make the choice with declaration that we will pursue after God. That's what we need to do. We need to exalt and rejoice in Elohim, the Almighty's One, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. 
to remember who Elohim is in his love above all the pleasures of this world. Those that are upright love Elohim because Elohim is the source of all that is right and good. But if we're not upright, if we don't have integrity in our own heart and allow ourselves to make choices that are dictated by immediate temporal fulfillments that can be used as bait by other powers to manipulate our lives, we end up on a path that goes away from God and towards destruction and hell. We need to pray and ask God to draw us with a resolve that we see who he is in his beauty and his glory. You see, it is the integrity of God's love that is a consuming fire of judgment against all corruption that is the source of wholeness. For corruption is the source of the opposite of that which robs one from wholeness and is destructive like a black hole in outer space, pulling everything in to itself in destruction, seeking to fulfill what cannot be filled or fulfilled except in total union with the Spirit of God. So wholeness comes out of holiness. The holiness of God being the integrity of his love that requires judgment against all that is contrary to love. And out of holiness comes wholeness. The word of God says that we're to be perfect and entire. That his purpose is that we would come to the place where we are perfect and entire, grasping after nothing or wanting nothing. It says, they that fear the Lord shall not want any good thing not because they necessarily have all the natural fulfillments of this world, not at all. Because they have found what is ultimately good that gives them satisfaction in the greatest contradictions of the natural realm. Going through great trials, they know the comfort of the Holy Spirit and an even more intimate relationship with God. Draw me. We will run after thee. The king hath brought me into his chambers. How wonderful. The place of intimacy with God. We are to remember it. So we will be glad and rejoice in the Lord. Because why? Because he's bringing us into the place of his very chambers where his glory dwells. Where his intimacy is with us in fellowship. Chambers that protect us from the enemy. You know that song? I love to sing it often. It talks about God's chambers, which are the chambers of protection and relation to the beauty that is in God. <coughs> the beauty that is in the holiness of God. We are talking about how the holiness of God brings forth wholeness, and out of wholeness comes forth beauty. And here what we see is this. King David, uh, maybe I'll sing this song even though I'm getting over this 
cold or whatever it is. I'm going to sing it here. <coughs> One thing have I desired of the Lord, and that will I seek after, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life to behold the beauty of the Lord and to inquire in his temple to behold the beauty of the Lord and to inquire in his temple for in the time of trouble he shall hide me, hide me in his pavilion, in the secret of his tabernacle. He shall hide me, he shall set me up upon a rock. And it goes on to behold the beauty of the Lord. So you see that it is in this intimate relationship that David has in delighting to behold the beauty of the Lord, which comes out of his holiness, that he is hidden in his presence that is a place of protection, and he experiences the power of God's deliverance and delivering him from all evil and harm and destruction in every enemy. And he did indeed experience that, King David. And it says here in verse 4, we will remember thy love more than wine. We need to make sure we do that. That we mark it. And we do that by setting aside time to seek God. By making him our priority where we can dwell on him and reflect on him. It is the upright that love the Lord, because the upright do not violate their conscience before God or others. They do not violate their integrity to be true to God. By seeking some more temporal security or gain. We go on to Song of Solomon, chapter 1, verse 5 and 6, and we read, I am black but comely, O ye daughters of Jerusalem, as the tents of Kedar, as the curtains of Solomon look not upon me, because I am black, because the sun hath looked upon me. My mother's children were angry with me. They made me the keeper of the vineyards, but my own vineyard have I not kept. This blackness symbolizes someone who has experienced transformation through the heat of trials. And that becomes more evident. I looked at a number of different translations that even make this more evident. We are not to look upon those that are part of his bride, his corporate assembly that love him, because of the way they are different, because of what they have gone through in trials and tribulation. We are called and counsel to buy of God 
God, gold tried in the fire. Remember the Laodicean church? They were lukewarm. God said he would spew them out of his mouth. Because they believed they were rich and increased with goods and had need of nothing, and didn't realize that, when, that they were deceived by false prosperity teachings like many are today, or they equate godliness with material gain. And the word of God says, from such turn away. For God has chosen the poor, rich, and heirs of the kingdom, it says, in the word of God. That does not mean that he doesn't have those that are rich in his kingdom. <clears throat> but those that are in a love relationship with him are not trusting in their riches. They're using those resources they've been given fully for the kingdom of God because they're in love with God. And their heart is not in the temporal things of this world that don't satisfy. They found their satisfaction in the Lord. But we are counseled to buy of him gold tried in the fire. We are to say, God, I would rather, I'm asking you to be the potter and me the clay. I'm asking you to chastise me because I want to be judged rather than to be condemned with the world. I am choosing rather to experience a lot of trials and suffering and end up in a good relationship of intimacy with you. <coughs> Rather than to say, God, I'm going to try to ride the fence and do those things that you would find acceptable. But I need this, and I need this temporal thing and that temporal thing. And no, when we choose to buy a God, golden, God the gold tried in the fire, he will test us. He will try us. But he will give us the grace through every trial to come through. And we will be transformed and we will be made as those that reflect his glory. Now, I know the word black doesn't sound like, how can black be? Well, black is a beautiful color also, even as white is a beautiful color. There can be certain things that are colored black and when they're put together with other colors, it makes a beautiful pattern or a beautiful looking mosaic. Black speaks of those that have been put through the fire of the heat of trials, the sun representing those trials. It says here, the sun hath looked upon me. That's why I'm black. In a way, when Jesus Christ, also the Son of God, looks upon us because we've given him the okay to look upon us and to examine us and to say, God, I want you to have your way in my life. Even if it hurts, he will look upon us and he will bring us through, even as he brought Peter through. Remember what Christ said to Peter? He said, Though Satan would, has tried you, will try your faith and sift your faith as wheat. I have prayed for you that your faith would not fail through the trial you're about to go through. And so the Lord looked upon Peter when he denied him with a look of love and forgiveness. And Peter wept. And the Son may look upon us, that is, Jesus Christ, in our trial. When we have had through that trial the dross and the ugliness of our lives exposed, and we feel the enemy condemning us and saying, see, that's who you are. You're the dross. You're no good. Look at the way you reacted in this trial. 
How could you even be saved? You're not saved. But we still somehow put faith in the mercy of God. Our faith doesn't fail, and we cry out and we say, God, forgive me, be merciful for me. It's Peter that broke down and wept. And then the blood of Jesus Christ cleanses us and makes us white as snow and skims off the dross that has come to the surface of the smelted gold so that now again we do not have the dross in the surface of our lives but are reflecting the glory of God. Gold can, and have, if gold was 100% purified, it would be transparent glass. They know that's true of any metal. But it's impossible to, in this world, at least thus far, be able to purify metal to that degree so that it becomes transparent. It says in verse 6 here also, My mother's children were angry with me. They made me keeper of the vineyards, but mine own vineyard have I not kept. Those in the Bride of Christ are those who are persecuted by the typical churches that are denominational from the very beginning when the Catholic Church was brought forth and out of that came all the other denominations. God isn't into denominationalism. He isn't into division. And he isn't into control. The tendency is, in the human condition, as time goes on, that a hierarchy forms that has ulterior motives or jaded motives or not totally pure motives. It starts out that leadership is pure, that it's been put through the trials of fire like Moses that was tried in the wilderness for 40 years before God had done such a work in his life that he was ready to be used by God to lead his church, the children of Israel, out of Egypt. Yes, the Lord raises up leadership. And the leadership has often been hidden. Not the ones that seek to be leaders, but that are so put through the trials, the last thing they want is to lead, which was the case with Moses. But then, later on, there are those that just seek their own interests, and they just think that because they went to a Bible school and got educated, that qualifies them to be a pastor or a teacher? No. That's far from the qualification. Professionalism is not a qualification for being a spiritual leader. It is the clear gifting of God that should be evident by that person in their life being displayed before others as godly through all the trials they go through. And as gifted in that gifting and their expressions in the body of Christ. And that's where true leadership is made, raised up. But that can't happen in an assembly where you have a clergy-laity gap and the clergy's up here and they do all this entertainment, so to speak, and other things. And the people in the congregation 
are not even provoked to move in the gifts of the Spirit. There shouldn't be a meeting where there isn't many people sharing out of the total freedom of the Spirit and the leading of the Spirit. That's the way it was in the early church. That's the way it was in the camp of Moses when those men prophesied and they were told to shut up and they thought that Moses wanted them to shut up and they wanted them to shut up themselves, these people. When God moves on people in an intimate relationship with him, out of that flows the spirit of prophecy. It is a natural thing that flows out of worship. It is creative expression first towards God that then can begin to flow towards others. <coughs> and the Lord is seeking to restore these things in the church. But as long as we have the control and we want to limit God and stay in our own comfort zone, we are limiting the fullness of the headship of Christ from inhabiting the body. And we need to repent of it. Oh, I could go into a lot with this. And so one group has one focus that denominates them from another group that has another focus. And if those from another group come in or that have a different, slightly different persuasion, they are held back and not so closely embraced. The Word of God commands us that we are to receive one another as Christ received us as sinners. That we are to repent of division and of control and come into the unity that Christ prayed for in John 17. Where we know the greatness of God's mercy in such a way and thus of his love that we show the same mercy and love towards others. The Lord is calling his people in this hour to repent of the spirit of control, to repent of loving the world so that our hearts are hard and we become denominating and divisive and we do not receive one another, nor do we have a desire to wash, as it were, one another's feet with the word of God by prophecy and whatever other gifts the Holy Spirit moves upon us. We don't spend quality time corporately waiting on God until there's real breakthrough and the power and the glory of God comes down. His house is called to be a house of prayer. First of all, when we come into meetings often, we start with a program that's all pre-scheduled. And we start with joy and joyful singing. We're hardly often sensitive to whose presence we're in. And so his presence is greatly withdrawn because of our insensitivity, because of the loves of the world that are in our heart. And God is saying that he wants us to repent of not fearing him. What is the fear of God? It is what brings us to the place of reverence and humility for one thing. It comes out of choosing to rightly recognize God for who he is. And that brings one to a place of reverence and humility that drives one to a place of honesty and to a place of honesty that drives one to a place of humility before God and each other and also places sensitivity. And when we are in that place, we are in a place where we can cry out to God out of a pure heart in prayer corporately and when you start your services in humility on your face before God leadership and people and on your knees. Now, of course, it's mainly the heart that you want 
although outwardly even it is good that we do it this way, that we enter in that way, not just being so presumptuous to come with joy. Yes, we need the joy. But let's remember that the Word of God, both in the New and Old Testament, strongly emphasizes the importance of humbling ourselves under the mighty hand of God. The Word of God says that if my people will humble themselves and pray and turn away from their wicked ways, then will I heal their lands. Heal their land and heal their lives individually and corporately. We are to know what it is to behave ourselves in the house of God, which is the pillar and ground of truth. In the New Testament, it strongly emphasizes, especially in Timothy, the importance of sobriety because our adversary, the devil, goes about as a roaring lion, seeking whom he may devour. What delivers us from the sin of presumption is the fear of God, which brings us to that place of humility because it is a choice, not just with our mind, but with our heart to recognize whose presence we're in. The integrity of his love is a blazing fire of judgment that will not tolerate sin. The greatness of his mercy to forgive those that would repent and cast off their sin. He's calling us to be those that come forth to be his bride. And we may well be persecuted by churches that refuse the fullness of the headship of Christ because they refuse to give up their programs and their control and their comfortable mold to go on to a place of greater enlargement where denominationalism is conquered, where divisiveness and loves of the world are overcome. And so we read in this passage in Solomon of the persecution. They made me the keeper of the vineyards, but my own vineyard have I not kept. My mother's children were angry with me. Why? Just like Joseph, they were jealous. They were jealous because Joseph claimed to have all these dreams. So they end up coming out of the mother's structure that limits God. That they might be blessed to serve him. They made me the keeper of the vineyards. They wanted this one to keep not only their vineyards, but try to keep her own at the same time. They wanted this person to do all the hard work while they neglected the vineyards. Yes, sometimes if a church limits God and refuses to enter the fullness of his headship in inhabiting their corporate assembly, the sheep will go elsewhere to find food, and you will have to feed them. To the point that maybe even your own desires to feed more the way you would have it are hindered. 
So we go on in Song of Solomon here, and we reread in verse 7, Tell me, O thou whom my soul loveth, where thou feedest, where thou makest thy flock to rest at noon. For why should I be as one that turneth aside by the flocks of thy companions? Those in the pure bride of Christ declare their love for Christ. O thou whom my soul loveth, and ask where Christ is fully dwelling with the gathering of his people. They're not satisfied with being part of some church that limits God and maybe is into too much of programs and entertainment that limit God. They want to be with those that are insensitive to God's order, God's plan, his plan for his fullness to dwell in the body. They're seeking, where is Christ fully dwelling with the gathering of his people so that they fully rest in Christ as well and know that corporate blessing of communion with God? They strongly express that they are not satisfied with the gatherings of his people that are more distant from being with those that are right there close to Christ. They want to be right there at his feet, where he dwells, where he can dwell because his people have facilitated the, the Lord's garments covering them, or him as a hen covering them with his wings, in the place of intimacy and fellowship with God. And that is the hunger that the Lord is seeking, that we as his people should have. And what quenches our hunger for God? For Elohim, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, the Almighty's One, Jesus Christ. Ahiyah, asher ahiyah, the I am that I am. What hinders that? Fellowship with His people. It is love for the world. It is love for the things of this world that quench our thirst for God. When we are caught up in the busyness of this life, seeking our own ways and our own fulfillments that may even be spiritual, but our own ways, like the Ephesian church, we've lost our first love. And when we lose our first love, the next thing that happens is we form doctrines that justify our state, like the Church of Laodicea did, that allowed them to believe that they were really in a good place with God, when in fact they were wretched and miserable and poor and blind and naked. For why should I be as one that turneth aside by the flocks of thy companions? I'm not satisfied with being there. I want to be right before you, God. That's what's in the heart of the bride, because the bride has not had their thirst quenched. They are hungry. They have an appetite for the things that are eternal and valuable. Song of Solomon 1.8 1, If thou know not, O thou fairest among women, go thy way forth 
by the footsteps of the flock and feed thy kids beside the shepherd's tents. God counsels in response for those in the bride of Christ to bring themselves forth to be near the tents of true shepherds that feed their congregation. And there feed those that God has brought into their lives. We all have people that God brings across our path. What the Lord is saying here is that, okay, align yourselves with those that are the closest, that are truly congregations and shepherds that truly are feeding the sheep. Not the many that are drunk and desensitized with the world and caught in their own little mold. In other words, make it clear who the true shepherds are and begin to feed those God has placed in your life. This will then cause you to be led of God to the gathering of assemblies that are the true bride of Jesus Christ, where he comes down and inhabits the body. When our hunger and thirst is there, it plays out in our lives. We won't be satisfied until we find those kind of relationships with congregations that are godly. And we will have the desire to feed those in our own lives that God has brought. And from that can spring forth the bride of Christ, even from those that we feed. Bride responds by describing the beauty of the bridegroom. We see this in verse 9. I have compared thee, O my love, to a company of horses in Pharaoh's chariots. Thy cheeks are comely with rows of jewels, thy neck with chains of gold. We will make thee borders of gold and studs of silver. So the Lord is describing the beauty of the bridegroom here and declares that she will magnify the beauty of God. He, the bridegroom, Jesus Christ, by showing forth the greatness of the divinity and redemption of the Lord. And this is seen in that she says, we will make thee borders of gold and studs of silver. Silver speaks of redemption. And she is saying here that I will actually invest in building solid pillars that point towards your redemption and towards your divinity in my life because I am so attracted to you. While the Lord sits before the bride at the place of fellowship, the bride places before him well-placed expressions of affection that are like sending forth of perfume before him. And this is seen in verse 14 to 17. My beloved is unto me as cluster of camphire in the vineyards of Engedi. Behold, thou art fair, my love. Behold, thou art fair. Thou was dove's eyes. Behold, thou art fair, my beloved, yea, pleasant. Also our bed is green. The beams of our house are cedar and our rafters of fir. So the Lord sits before the bride at the place of fellowship. 
the bride places before him well-placed expressions of affection that are like sending forth a perfume before him. To the bride of Jesus Christ the Lord is like a precious bundle gift of the most precious perfume, myrrh. Though the night, through the night, she will make herself in the very center of her heart desire and being the place for the pleasure of Elohim with words of affection and comfort. That's verses 12 to 13, which I don't happen to have here. Somehow it was overlooked. So we'll just skip that and go to the last part, which I already read. That was the part that said, My beloved is unto me as a cluster of campfire in the vineyards of Engedi. Behold, thou art fair, my love. Behold, thou art fair, thou hast dove's eyes. Behold, thou art fair, my beloved. Yea, pleasant also, our bed is green. The beams of our house are cedar and our rafters of fir. The Lord is to those who are his bride like a very fragrant flower, which is the campfire. The campfire flower is very fragrant. The Lord is very bright with beauty, and his eyes are like dove's eyes. The place of abiding with the Lord is pleasant <coughs> and filled with life. The place of the Lord's dwelling with his bride is surrounded with great pillars of great beauty and life like the cedar in the fir tree. Yes, this is the love story, and this is the love relationship that God is wanting in us individually in the last days and in us corporately. And the key thing is to return back to genuinely fearing God so that the hardness that is in our heart is broken, so that the hunger in our heart is there that brings us into that love relationship with God who poured out his life and his atoning work on the cross. We need to identify with that. There's a verse that says, I have been crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, I live, yet not I, but Christ lives within me in the life which I now live. I live by the faith of the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. So let us remember on this day of the atoning death of Jesus Christ, that great love of God, so that we are not identifying with merely what he did for us, but with the resurrection of his love towards us and of our love in our lives towards him. God bless you and I thank you for listening to this message.